Section 19 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 19 A Slap for the Major. The columns of Colonel Henry and Major Webb, as said the chief, had united and here were two men who could be counted on to poise the pursuit for all they were worth hitherto acting in open country and free from encumbrance the indians had been hard to reach now they were being driven into their fastness among the mountains towards the distant shelter whither their few wounded had been conveyed and where the old men the women and children were hiding now it meant that unless the troops could be confronted and thrown back Another transfer of tepees and travois, ponies and dogs, wounded and aged, would have to be made. Lame Wolf had thought his people safe behind the walls of the Bighorn and the shifting screen of warriors along the foothills, but the blue skirmish lines pushed steadily on into the fringing pines, driving the feathered braves from ridge to ridge, and Lame Wolf had sense enough to see that here were leaders that meant business and would not be held. Henry had ten veteran troops at his back when he united with Webb, who led his own and Beecher's squadron, making eighteen companies of troops of horse with their pack mules all out at the front, while the wagon train and ambulances were thoroughly guarded by a big battalion of sturdy infantry, nearly all of them good marksmen, against whose spiteful springfields the warriors only made one essay in force, and that was more than enough. The bluecoats emptied many an Indian saddle and strewed the prairie with ponies, and sent Whistling Elk and his people to the right about in sore dismay. And then it dawned on Lane Wolf that he must now either mislead the cavalry leader, throw him off the track as it were, or move the villages, wounded prisoners and all, across the Bighorn River, where hereditary foemen, Shoshone and Absaraka, would surely welcome them red-handed. It was at this stage of the game he had his final split with Stabber. Stabber was shrewd, and saw unerringly that with the other columns up with Custer on the Little Horn, and Washakie on the Wind River, with reinforcements coming from north and south, the surrounding of the Sioux in arms would be but a matter of time. He had done much to get Lame Wolf into this scrape, and now was urging hateful measures as— unless they were prepared for further and heavier losses, the one way out, and that way was, surrender. Now this is almost the last thing the Indian will do, not from fear of consequences at the hands of his captors, for he well knows that physically he is infinitely better off when being coddled by Uncle Sam than when fighting in the field. It is simply the loss of prestige among his fellow red men that he hates and dreads. Therefore, Nothing, short of starvation or probable annihilation, prompts him, as a rule, to yield himself as a prisoner. Stabber urged it rather than risk further battle and further loss, but Stabber had long been jealous of the younger chief, envied him his much larger following, his record as a fighter, and Stabber, presumably, would be only too glad to see him fallen from his high estate. They could then enjoy the hospitality of a generous nation, a people of born fools, said the unreasoning and ungenerate red man all winter and 
when next they felt sufficiently slighted to warrant another issue on the warpath, they could take the field on equal terms. Lame Wolf therefore swore he'd fight to the bitter end. Stabber swore he'd gather all his villagers, now herding with those of wool, and, having segregated his sheep from the more numerous goats, would personally lead them, whither the white man could not follow. At all events he made this quarrel the pretext for his withdrawal from the full five-score fighting men, and Lame Wolf cursed him roundly as the wretch deserved and all short-handed now, with hardly five hundred braves to back him, bent his energy to checking Henry's column in the heart of the wild hill country. And this was the situation when the general's first dispatches were sent in to Frayne. This, the last news, to reach the garrison from the distant front for five long days. And then, one morning, when the snow was sifting softly down, there came tidings that thrilled the little community, heart and soul, tidings that were heard with mingled tears and prayers and rejoicings and that led to many a visit of congratulation to Mrs. Hay, who, poor woman, dare not say at the moment that she had known it all as much as twenty-four hours earlier, despite the fact that Pete and Crapaud were banished from the roll of her auxiliaries. Even as the new couriers came speeding through the veil of falling flakes, riding jubilantly over the wide rolling prairie, with their news of victory and battle, post-commander at Fort Frayne was puzzling over a missive that had come to him. He knew not how, mysterious as the anarchist warnings said to find their way to the very bedside of the guarded Romanovs. Sentry number four had picked it up on his post an hour before the dawn. A letter, addressed in bold hand to Major Stanley Flint, commanding Fort Frayne. And presuming the Major himself had dropped it, he turned it over to the corporal of his relief and so it found its way towards Reveille, into the hands of old McGann, wheezing about his work of building fires. And Michael laid it on the Major's table, and thought no more about it, until two hours later when the Major roused and read. And then the row began, that ended only with the other worries of his incumbency at Frayne. Secretly, Flint was still doing his best to discover the bearer, when came the bold riders from the north with their thrilling news. Secretly, he had been over at the guardhouse, interviewing as best he could, by the aid of an unwilling clerk who spoke a little Sioux, a young Indian girl whom Crabbe's convalescent squad, four in number, had most unexpectedly run down when sent scouting five miles up the Platte, and brought screaming, scratching, and protesting back to Frayne. Her pony had been killed in the dash to escape, and the two Indians with her seemed to be young lads not well schooled as warriors for they rode away, pommel over the prairie, leaving the girl to the mercy of the soldiers. Flint believed her to be connected in some way with the coming of the disturbing note, which was why he compelled her detention at the guardhouse under Webb's regime. She would have been questioned by Hay, or some one of his household, under Flint. No one of Hay's family or retainers could be allowed to see her. He regarded it as most significant that her shrillest screams and fiercest resistance should have been reserved until just as her guardians were bearing her past the trader's house. She had a little light prison room to herself all that winter morning, and there, disdainful of bunk or chair, enveloped in her blanket, she squatted disconsolate, greeting all questioners with defiant and fearless shruggings and inarticulate protest, 
Not a syllable of explanation, not a shred of news could their best endeavors wring from her. Yet her glittering eyes were surely in search of someone, for she looked up eagerly every time the door was opened, and Flint was just beginning to think he would have to send for Mrs. Hay when the couriers came with their stirring news and he had to drop other affairs in order to forward this important matter to headquarters. Once again, it seems, Trooper Kennedy had been entrusted with distinguished duty for it was he who came trotting foremost up the road, waving the dispatch on high. A comrade from Blake's troop, following through the ford, had turned to the left and led his horse up the steep to the quarters nearest the flagstaff. This time there was no big-hearted post-commander to bid the Irishman refresh himself at Libium. Flint was alone at his office at the moment, and knew not this strange trooper, and looked askance at his heterodox garb and war-worn guise. Such laxity, said he to himself, was not permitted where he had hitherto served, which was never on Indian campaign. Kennedy, having delivered his dispatches, stood mutely, expectant of question, and struggling with an Irishman's enthusiastic eagerness to tell the details of heady flight. But Flint had but one method of getting at facts, the official reports, and Kennedy stood unnoticed until impatient at last he queried, Beg pardon, sir, but uh, may we put up our horses? Who's we? asked the major bluntly. And where are the others? Trig, sir, Captain Blake's troop. He went to the captain's quarters with a package. He should have reported himself to the post commander, said the major, who deemed it advisable to make prompt impression on these savage hunters of savage game. Them uh, wasn't his orders, sir said Kennedy, with zealous but misguided loyalty to his comrades and his regiment. No one has a right, sir, to give orders that are contrary in spirit to the regulations and customs of the service, answered the commander with proper austerity. Mr. Wilkins, he continued, as the burly quartermaster came bursting in, have the other troopers sent to report at once to me, and let this man wait outside till I am ready to see him. As it happened that a dozen members of the garrison gathered from the lips of a participant, stirring particulars of a spirited chase and fight that set soldiers to cheering and women and children to extravagant scenes of rejoicing before the official head of the garrison was fairly ready to give out the news. Kennedy had taken satisfaction for the commander's slights by telling the tidings broadcast to the crowd that quickly gathered, and in three minutes the word was flying from lip to lip that the troops had run down Lame Wolf's main village after an all-day, all-night rush to head them off, and that with very small loss they had been able to capture many of the families and to scatter the warriors among the hills. In brief, while Henry, with the main body, had followed the trail of the fighting band, Webb had been detached and, with two squadrons, had ridden hard after a Shoshone guide who led them by a shortcut through the range and enabled them to pounce on the village, where were most of Lane Wolf's non-combatants, guarded only by a small party of warriors, while Captains Billings and Ray, with their troops, remained in charge of these captives. Webb, with Blake and the others, had pushed on in pursuit of certain braves who had scampered into the thick of the hills, carrying a few of the wounded and prisoners with them. Among those captured or recaptured were Mr. Hay and Crawford. Among those who had been spirited away was Nanette Flower. This seemed strange and uncomfortable. And yet Blake had found time to write to his winsome wife, 
to send her an important missive and most important bit of news. It was with these she came running to Mrs. Ray, before the latter had time to half-read the long letter received from her soldier husband, and we take the facts in the order of the revelation. "'Think of it, Maddie,' she cried. "'Think of it. Gerald's first words almost are, "'Take good care of that pouch and contents.' And now pouch and contents are gone. Whoever dreamed that they would be of such consequence? He says the newspaper will explain. And eventually the two bony heads were bent over the big sheets of a dingy, grimy copy of a Philadelphia daily. And there, on an inner page, heavily marked, appeared a strange item, and this Quaker City journal had been picked up in an Ogallala camp. The item read as follows. An untamed Sioux. The authorities of the Carlisle School and the police of Harrisburg are hunting high and low for a young Indian, known to the records of the Academy as Ralph Moreau, but born on the payrolls of Buffalo Bill's Wide West aggregation as Eagle Wing, a youth who is credited with having given the renowned scout showman more trouble than all his braves, broncos, and busters thereof combined, being of suburb, physique, and a daring horseman. Moreau had been forgiven many a peccadillo, and had followed the fortunes of the show two consecutive summers until Cody finally had to get rid of him as an intolerable nuisance. It seems that when a lad of eighteen, Eagle Wing had been sent to Carlisle, where he ran the gamut of scrapes of every conceivable kind. He spoke English, picked up about the agencies, had influential friends, and, in some clandestine way, received occasional supplies of money that enabled him to take French leave when he felt like it. He was sent back from Carlisle to Dakota as irreclaimable, and, after a year or two on his native heath, reappeared among the haunts of civilization as one of Buffalo Bill's warriors. Bill discharged him at Cincinnati, and, at the insistence of the Indian Bureau, he was again placed at Carlisle, only to repeat, on a larger scale, his earlier exploits and secure a second transfer to the plains, where his opportunities for devilment were limited. Then Cody was induced to take him on again, by profuse promises of good behavior, which were kept until Pennsylvania soil was reached two weeks ago, when he broke loose again was seen in store clothes the round west philadelphia for a few days plentifully supplied with money and next he turned up in the streets of carlisle where he assaulted an attache of the school whose life was barely saved by the prompt efforts of other indian students moreau escaped to harrisburg which he proceeded to paint his favorite color that very night and wound up the entertainment by galloping away on the horse of a prominent official who had essayed to escort him back to Carlisle. It is believed that he is now in hiding somewhere about the suburbs, and that an innate propensity for devilment will speedily betray him to the clutches of the law. A few moments after reading this oddly interesting story, the two friends were in consultation with Mrs. Dade, who in turn called in Dr. Waller, just returning from the hospital, and a not-too-satisfactory visit to Mr. Field, there had been a slight change for the better in the condition of General Field that had enabled Dr. Loren of Fort Russell and a local physician to arrange for his speedy transfer to Cheyenne. This had, in a measure, 
relieved the anxiety of Waller's patient, but never yet had the veteran practitioner permitted him to know that he was practically a prisoner as well as a patient. Waller feared the result on so high-strung a temperament, and had made young Field believe that, when strong and well enough to attempt the journey, he should be sent to Rock Springs. Indeed, Dr. Weller had no intention of submitting to Major Flint's decision as final. He had written personally to the medical director of the department, acquainting him with the facts, and, meanwhile, had withdrawn himself as far as possible, officially and socially, from the limited circle in which moved his perturbed commanding officer. He was at a distant point of the garrison, therefore, and listening to the excited and vehement comments of the younger of the three women upon this strange newspaper story, and its possible connection with matters at Frayne, at the moment when a dramatic scene was being enacted over beyond the guardhouse. Kennedy was still at the center of a little group of eager listeners when Pink Marble Factum of the trader's store came hurrying forth from the adjutant's office speedily followed by Major Flint. "'You may tell Mrs. Hay that while I cannot permit her to visit the prisoner,' he called after the clerk, "'I will send the girl over, under suitable guard.' To this Mr. Marble merely shrugged his shoulders and went on. He fancied Flint no more than did the relics of the original garrison. A little later Flint personally gave an order to the sergeant of the guard, and then came commotion. First, there were stifled sounds of scuffle from the interior of the guardhouse, then shrill, wrathful screams, then a woman's voice uplifted in wild upbraidings in an unknown tongue, at sound of which Trooper Kennedy dropped his rein and his jaw, stood staring one minute, then with the exclamation, "'Mother of God! But I know that woman!' burst his way through the crowd and ran toward the old log blockhouse at the gate, the temporary post of the guard. Just as he turned the corner of the building, almost stumbling against the post commander, there came bursting forth from the dark interior a young woman of the Sioux, daring, furious, raging, and breaking loose from the grasp of the two luckless soldiers who had her by the arms. Away she darted down the road, still screaming like some infuriated child, and rushed straight for the open gateway of the haze. Of course the guard hastened in pursuit, the major shouting, "'Stop her! Catch her!' and the men striving to appear to obey, yet shirking the feat of seizing the fleeing woman. Fancy, then, the amaze of the swiftly following spectators when the traitor's front door was thrown wide open and Mrs. Hayes herself sprang forth. Another instant, and the two women had met at the gate. Another instant still, and with one motherly arm twining around the quavering, panting, pleading girl, and straining her to the motherly heart, Mrs. Hayes' right hand and arm flew up, in the suburb gesture known the wide frontier over as the indian signal halt and halt they did every mother's son save kennedy who sprang to the side of the girl and faced the men in blue and then another woman's voice rich deep ringing powerful fell on the ears of the amazed swift gathering throng with the marvelous order stand where you are you shan't touch a hair of her head She's a chief's daughter. She's my own kin, and I'll answer for her to the general himself. As for you, she added, turning low and glaring straight at the astounded Flint, all the pent-up sense of wrath, indignity, shame, and wrong overmastering any thought of prudence or of the divinity that doth hedge, 
the commanding officer as for you she cried i pity you when our own get back again god help you stanley flint the moment my husband sets eyes on you do you know the message that came to him this day and now the words rang louder and clearer as she addressed the throng i do and so do officers and gentlemen who'd be shamed to have to shake hands with such as he he's got my husband's note about him now and what my husband wrote was this i charge myself with every dollar you charge to field and with the further obligation of thrashing you on sight and mark you he'll do it end of chapter nineteen